Hello and welcome. Today we are talking about comparison. Comparison which can be like drinking up out of a cup of poison. And we're also going to talk about self-acceptance, which is one of the first things that comes to my mind when I think of what the opposite or the antidote to comparison might be. And I want to start by sharing a story that took place about a decade ago at a time in my life when I was in a very open-minded, curious, exploratory, kind of agnostic phase. And uh, part of this was because I had made friends um, during this season of my life with a very um, different type of person than I'd ever been friends with. The, the, the man who I'd become friends with would be easiest to describe as a clairvoyant, as a very unassuming, plain-spoken, ordinary person who had some kind of extrasensory perception and intuitive and empathic um, perceptive abilities that um, really shook up what I thought I believed in life. And even though I didn't believe all the things that my new friend did, certainly almost none of them when we started spending time together, um, my association with this very colorful, outspoken clairvoyant, um, it just made me more curious for different perspectives than, than I uh, had been previously. Things that I had been very close-minded and dismissive towards, suddenly I had kind of more openness and curiosity, even if I didn't agree with them or embrace them. And so when a book started getting passed around my tiny little friendship circle during this time by a psychic named Ainsley McLeod, I, uh, I picked it up and I read through it. And essentially the book was written by the psychic, Ainsley McLeod, who communicated with his spirit guides. And the fundamental concept that the book presented had to do with past lives and this idea of soul age, which in a nutshell is the concept that we are not limited to this lifetime that we are souls that live countless incarnations before and after this lifetime, and that through all of these incarnations, all these different lives we lead in different bodies, in different cultures, in different eras, in different social situations, in different class situations, with different um, privileges and challenges throughout our many different lifetimes, we develop this kind of essential spiritual maturity or wisdom that we carry into this lifetime. So everybody in this lifetime, according to the cosmology of this book, has a soul age. They have this kind of transcendent soul wisdom that they bring from all of those previous experiences they've had. An example of this would be if I had lived a bunch of incarnations as women in my previous lives in very patriarchal societies, I may then get born into this lifetime with a kind of 
innate empathy and understanding of the plight of women in this world, even though I'm in a male body and my environment might not even teach me those things. I might just come in with it inside my soul because I've been there at some point that I don't even remember on a conscious level because it's not in the memory bank of this human mind. Um, so another part of what the book presented was the, the, there was the idea of the soul age, the idea that we come into this world with a certain soul age and people who have lived a lot of incarnations, Ainsley MacLeod called them the older souls. Those are people who have more empathy, more compassion. They're less hungry for things like fame and power um, and social acceptance because their values are perhaps a little more transcendent or they just don't need the validation of the tribe. They're content to hang in the back and kind of focus on a more immediate and real experience of life. And the younger souls, the, the younger souls are the, individual, the individuals who have lived less incarnations, and therefore they come into this world um, and act more from a place of ego and competitiveness. They're still concerned with establishing their sense of identity, their sense of individuality. They are more comforted by validation and social acceptance from the the culture around them, they crave things like fame and fortune and power um, and are more willing to trample the vulnerability and innocence of others in pursuit of that goal of, uh, what, you know, power or validation um, or what have you. And, and in Ainsley McLeod's book, he created this very simple perhaps a bit reductive scale of 1 to 10 soul age. It was a, a soul age scale that went from 1 to 10. And 1 is the youngest soul. And 10 is the oldest and most mature soul who has lived through the most incarnations and experienced the most maturation and growth. And, um, and I think his book, again, this is a decade ago, so I don't remember it very clearly, but I think it had like a chapter dedicated to each soul age. And, um, and, and it also, at some point, I think, encouraged the reader to kind of meditate and maybe even communicate with their own soul or spirit guides and ask themselves what their soul age was. And this, I think, was to help facilitate a deeper understanding of oneself so that you could understand your motivations and kind of the pros and cons of each soul age. Um, and as this this little book circulated, or the, I don't think it was that little of a book, actually, as this book circulated through the, my tiny little uh, friendship circle at the time, me and my hyper-intuitive friend uh, discussed the soul age of all the different people we knew mutually and as we did this my intuitive friend Kevin was his name he didn't have a strong personal connection to this specific um, philosophical or spiritual framework however 
he had, I guess, enough of a connection to it and his own kind of intuitive read on everybody that we knew that he had very clear senses of what everyone's soul age was. And as we talked through our little tiny friendship circle, I was shocked that almost everybody was a 10, according to him and his assessment. And I would sometimes disagree. I'd be like, they're a 10. You think they're a level 10 soul, but they're so directionless and broken. And he would say, you don't understand. It's because their heart is so profound and benevolent. They might not be well adapted to this world, but their heart is so profound and benevolent. Can't you see? Like, And then he would give examples and I would see. I'd be like, yeah, you're right. On that one level, they are uh, a 10 out of 10. Um, and we, you know, we talked through a, a few people that we mutually knew and he gave his impression. And then it came to me. I was the last person that we talked about. And I remember sitting alone with Kevin in his living room and asking him, what do you think my soul age is? And I already had a clear sense. I was, I was a 10 as far as I was concerned. And uh, I considered myself more wise and enlightened than most of the people around me most of the time. And uh, Kevin, however, thought that he didn't have an answer to my question. He said, I think you should just close your eyes and look into it and see what number comes into your awareness. So I thought that sounded like a good idea. So that's what I did. I, we just sat down in his living room. I closed my eyes. I kind of lightly held the question in my awareness of what is my soul age. And immediately the number seven appeared in my awareness. I could like see it in my imagination, in my mind's eye. And that's not what I was expecting. So I sat for a little bit longer. But nothing else was coming, and that seven was coming in strong. And so eventually, I opened my eyes and I said, I, all I'm seeing is a seven. And then Kevin's response was, yeah, that's about right. You're, you're about a seven. And then as soon as I had said it, I realized, wait a minute. Everybody else is a ten, and I'm a seven? That's not good. This can't be right. And this kind of like sense of shame and panic rushed through me but kevin assured me that uh, from his perspective it was completely right and in the same way that he had given reasons why the other people were their soul ages he gave very articulate and eloquent reasons why i would be a level seven soul he said miles you know you have this this pattern of closing your heart to people and the world which is a younger soul thing. You have this ability to go into pride and competitiveness and ego and vanity. It's all younger soul stuff, Miles. And uh, this wasn't how I saw myself, but I couldn't really argue too much because a part of me did have the ability to close my heart to the world. I knew it. I had gone and lived in the woods for most of my adult life at that point, partly because I was so sickened by humanity and the world around me so that was an uh undeniable part of my character and um and more than anything i uh i'm the one who had called myself a seven not really knowing what it meant um you know i was the one that closed my eyes and saw seven and uh this became a running joke in our tiny little friendship circle for for probably years afterwards because it got it got to me 
Even though I didn't believe in the cosmology, even though I didn't take it seriously on an intellectual level, on like an inner child innocence level, I a part of me did get perturbed by it. And that served a couple functions or like a couple, there were a couple layers to that. One layer was that um, it made me feel ashamed and it made me feel like there was some fundamental deficiency innate to my soul, essentially. <laughs> like There was something wrong with me at this like most fundamental of levels. Um, and, and especially when I looked at that from a comparative uh, vantage point, that felt horrible. It just felt fucking horrible. On the other hand, I, I included this, this little anecdotal story in my book, How to Open the Heart, which is one long kind of meandering story. Um, and I included it in there not because I wanted to present the, the concept of past lives or soul ages or anything like that. I was almost embarrassed to put that stuff in the book. Uh, although I think it's the whole story itself is kind of fun and it's like taking the piss out of me which on a story from a storytelling perspective is fun and and as far as the narrative of the book it's part of a bigger story there's in the book there's all of these different things that happen that um that kind of like bring me down to size and it's just an, it was just a little piece of a bigger procession within my life and it did facilitate, um, it, it was a part of facilitating this glimpse into a part of my character that, um, that could close its heart to people and the world. And, and the, like looking at it from a comparative lens feels bad, it feels gross, it feels kind of sickening. Um, but over time, I guess I kind of committed to studying this part of my character that, that was being um, put under a magnifying glass. This part of me that could shut its heart down. This part of me that could go to pride and ego and vanity and all of these things. And what I found over the years is that by sitting with that part of myself, exploring it, owning it, um, being with it, eventually... I was able to see that that's not bad stuff. I mean, if I do certain things and act out in certain ways because there are hurt places in me, that can go bad. But the fact that I contain these depths, the fact that I contain these complexities, these scars, these, these places of um, intensity and harshness, that actually is what makes me Miles. That's what makes me a person. And it's not a bad thing. It's actually the beauty of the complexity that is my character. And those parts of me, those depths of me, those conflicts that I've carried within myself and still carry, they make it possible for me to relate to others in a way that I otherwise may not be able to. They certainly make it possible for me to write books that I otherwise wouldn't be able to. They make it possible... It's just like... When I was looking... 
and I have to kind of hold this all very lightly because I still don't really think that that 10 point scale of looking at this the mystery of human existence is a very sophisticated way of looking at things but just to follow this through to its logical conclusion please uh humor me um when we played that game with the scale and i came out with seven when i looked at it in a comparative way when i looked at it as a deficiency it felt like debilitating it felt so horrible but over time as i was able to be with the parts of myself that that brought to the surface um i was able to eventually start seeing the beauty of even the most hurt and confused and angry and vicious parts of myself I was able to accept all of that as kind of just part of my humanity and and a, not an insignificant part, not a part to feel like it's a curse or I wish I was more pure because all of those parts of me are my gateway to connection with others. They're the the fuel source certainly for my writing at this point in my life um there's just so much richness there in that complexity of my character and when i looked at it in a com in a comparative way it's like i just totally lost sight that i was born into this world and if there are things i've brought with me that i can't change about my body or about my character or about my mind or whatever it's like to look at it in a comparative way can make all of those things feel hor like like um like really weird or fucked up or um really lonely and isolating but to take away the comparison and try to look at what's sacred there um, it's very easy to see how beautiful and profound the, all of the things within me that could have given me the uh, 7 rating on that scale um, really can appear from, from a wider, more gracious perspective. But at the time when all of that happened, I, it was like totally... Um, on some inner child, innocent, emotional level, totally an assault on my sense of superiority and confidence. Because who I thought I was, the, the vision I had of myself in the world was very different from what came out of the Soul Age scale game. Eventually, I, I got to the point where I could joke about it just like everybody else. People would tell jokes because it's funny, and it's not that serious. And over the years, I was able to be like, you know what? I don't know if I'm a 7 anymore. I'm feeling like a 6.5 or maybe even a 5.9 right now. Today, this is, like a, this is like a 6.5 day for me. And I could just fuck with it and have fun with it. Maybe partially because I was learning more about self-acceptance. And learning to love the parts of me that... Um, 
I had, I, I, at other times I had seen as a deficiency or I had had a lot of insecurity around. When we look at ourselves and others with comparison, it can turn things really poisonous really fast. Social media is an excellent example. When I go on there and I see kind of the highlight reel on Instagram, for example, that people post of their lives, and I'm going on there to compare myself, it feels like daggers. I see someone with this perfect lighting and a sunset on their their vacation on the beach and they're looking beautiful and I feel a dagger. Oh my God, I'm a loser. Um, I see people connecting with their, their lover or whatever. And if I'm looking from the point of comparison, it's a reminder of my loneliness. Whereas if I'm not looking from comparison, I can just see the person and be present to what's there. It's not a commentary on me. And in order to jump into comparison, I kind of have to stop, like, in any direct human interaction, I kind of have to stop being present with the person that I'm with and jump into my own mind to start comparing myself and start thinking about, oh, well, what does this mean about me? Someone's telling me about how, how much success they're having. What does this mean about my interminable suffering? You know, <laughs> someone's telling me about how they've found some path that's really, really working out well for them and it's completely different from mine. What is this telling me about how bad my path is and all of my choices are? No, it's when I can look at others without making it mean something about me, without jumping into comparison, there can be... Well, it's a cleaner experience of reality. And it's not easy because there's a lot of things in our culture that I think foster um, that kind of quantification and comparison. Um, and it, not a ton of things that foster the sense of self acceptance and peace that might be an antidote to that comparison and self-loathing. And um, I think that the only... I, I don't really give advice in any of these podcasts, but if I were to give any advice on this subject of navigating that space between comparison and self-acceptance, it would be to, to, to like notice the things that, that help us feel a sense of self-acceptance and move towards them more often in life. If it's people that help engender that, that feeling inside of us, or if it's media or books or whatever it may be, there are a lot of things that can foster a sense of feeling bad about ourselves, bad about the world, bad about others, um, and moving towards the influences inside ourselves and surrounding ourselves with people who can help build up a self-acceptance kind of resource bank, so to speak. Because for me, when my tank has got enough self-love and self-acceptance in it, when I go on social media, for example, I just see a bunch of beautiful people living their lives. And sometimes... Do I think that they're only showing a very kind of like narrow slice of it? Of course. But it's still wonderful to see people living. However, 
if my self-acceptance tank is empty, oh, it just feels like grinding against raw flesh. <laughs> there, uh, there isn't a buffer between my uh, fragile sense of self and then the glorious shining lives of others that <laughs> are laid out before me. Anyhow, um, that's all for today. I just wanted to talk a little bit about comparison about self-acceptance, about bridging the gap between the two. And, uh, you know, take it with a grain of salt. When it's coming from a level seven soul, everything is suspect. So, you know, <laughs> if you're interested in checking out my book, How to Open the Heart, you will find information about it in the description. Um, and until next time, I hope you have a beautiful week.